Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to the Federalist Society's fourth branch podcast for the Regulatory Transparency Project. My name is Jack Derwin and I'm Assistant Director of RTP. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the guest speakers joining us today. To learn more about any of our speakers and their interesting work, you can visit regproject.org. After opening remarks and discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A. Please enter any questions into the Q&A or the chat function, and we'll address those as time allows. Today, we're pleased to host a conversation titled Legal Issues for Commercial Drones, Privacy, Property Rights, and Federalism. To discuss this topic, we're pleased to feature Diana Cooper, Brent Skorup, and our moderator, Adam Thierer. Adam, who will introduce our other panelists in just a moment, is a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. He specializes in innovation, entrepreneurialism, the internet, and free speech issues with a particular focus on the public policy concerns surrounding emerging tech. And with that, Adam, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thanks, Jack. And I want to welcome everyone to another episode of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project's ongoing Fourth Branch podcast series. Our podcasts on tech matters feature leading policy experts debating the major legal issues surrounding various emerging technology sectors. Uh, again, my name is Adam Thier, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and I'm pleased to be your host for today's discussion. On today's episode, we'll be revisiting the question uh, surrounding drones, and more specifically, how we should balance federalism, interstate commerce, and technological innovation in our fast-moving tech economy. Some of our loyal listeners will recall that back in late 2019, I hosted another Federalist Society podcast on the same topic with a special guest. It was Senator Mike Lee, who had then just uh, introduced legislation entitled the Drone Integration and Zoning Act of 2019. That bill proposed giving local governments more say in how drones are regulated in the United States. And the bill raised the question, would a little dose of devolution help spur more drone innovation or do we instead need maybe a single set of rules for the entire nation to get things going? As I mentioned at the beginning of that podcast, I'll reiterate it here. I have personally struggled with these questions about how to balance federalism and technology policy throughout my career, going all the way back to my first book, which I published 22 years ago when I was still with the Heritage Foundation, which was on this exact topic. Two decades later, however, I'm sad to report I'm still struggling with how to strike the right balance, especially as it pertains to exciting new technologies like drones as they continue to rapidly emerge. Luckily, on today's podcast, I am joined by two of America's leading experts on drone law and policy, and they are going to help me and you figure all of this out. First, returning to the podcast today is my colleague, Brent Skorup, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Brent has written extensively on these issues and most notably uh, published a 50-state drone report card looking into how prepared states are to roll out drone innovations. And Brett has also authored many essays on this topic, including most notably uh, one entitled To Kickstart Drone Deliveries, Give Cities and States Regulatory Flexibility, which outlines how to open up more drone innovation at the state and local level. Brent, thanks for joining me again today. Thanks for having me. I'm also pleased to be joined by Diana Cooper, who is the head of U.S. policy for Hyundai Urban Air Mobility. Diana is responsible for working with legislators, regulators, local communities, and industry to foster a forward-looking regulatory and policy framework for uh, drones and uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. 
and to drive public acceptance of these technologies. She is one of the world's leading experts on this topic, and she has served as president of the Small UAV Coalition and president of the Drone Operators Federation. She's also served as special advisor to the chairman of the FAA Drone Advisory Committee. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Really excited for the discussion. Great. Okay, so we've got an hour and I have plenty of questions to ask, but let me begin by asking Brent and Diana to open up with some high-level uh, overviews, just about five minutes each, if they could, of how they think about drone policy, especially with regard to the role state and local governments might play here. And I'll start with Brent, because uh, Brent, you've written extensively about the need for cooperative federalism, as you call it, when it comes to drones. So let me ask you to start us off by explaining your approach to this issue. Yeah, thank, thanks, Adam, and, and thanks to the Federalist Society and, and, and Diana for uh, putting this group together. So how, how I view these things, and, and I, my background is telecommunications law, um, and, and that kind of shapes how I view these things. And like a lot of telecom lawyers, I've, I've been doing more drone work lately. In the last few years, I've, I've been doing uh, drone policy work. And at first, I, I'd say I, I probably had what I would consider the default view um, that airspace issues, aviation issues are almost totally a, a federal matter. As, as I looked into the law, however, I, I saw things were, were not quite that clear. And, and I've, I've been uh, writing about this um, so that federal and state lawmakers are prepared uh, for some of these legal issues that I foresee. And just briefly, I'll, I'll go through uh, some, some of what I've written about in my legal research. I put out a paper on, on the subject about the history of surface airspace and, and the, the privacy and property interests that, that uh, will, will make it a complicated area for federal and state lawmakers. So any, any discussion of, of legal history of airspace, you, you've got to talk about the Cosby case. And, and for the lawyers on the call, you may vaguely remember from one L year property law, the, the Cosby case, this was the, the chicken farm case. And, and just, just to refresh, uh, uh those former one L's, um, in Cosby, this was in 1946 Supreme court case, uh, during world war II, the U S military had taken over many small airports around the country. And one of these was in North Carolina. Uh, the Cosby's had a chicken farm adjacent to this formerly small airport in North Carolina, but uh, military bomber jets were were using this airport uh, during during wartime. Uh, it destroyed the Cosby's livelihood and and their home life. Planes were flying at less than 100 feet above the property, and and they sued. They they brought a, a novel case, an unconstitutional takings case, uh, against the federal government, and and it made to the Supreme Court that the the federal government argued that there can be no takings of airspace, that landowners only own the structures on their land uh, and don't own airspace. And, and the court rejected, rejected that argument um, in, in the Cosby case and, and said that landowners own airspace. They, they own the surface airspace. And, and the quote from the, the case is, quote, the landowner owns at least as much space above the ground as he can occupy or use in connection with the land, end quote. And, and critically, in, in that case, the, the court looked to North Carolina law to judge what the property interests are and, and actually noted a fir, uh, uh, positively uh, North Carolina claimed sovereignty to, to surface airspace. And, and, and this is uh, uh, notable and, and, and I think a sign of where courts would go in the future. 
there, there was another case called Griggs in the 1960s, a very similar case, except that the government's arguments were a little different in this case. Uh, they, they redefined the glide paths to and out of airports as navigable airspace. And again, argued, um, like in Cosby, there, there can't be a takings of, of navigable airspace when, when it's defined as navigable airspace. And the court rejected that again, uh, saying essentially that navigable airspace yields to property rights. They cited Cosby for this. Um, and so un under current law, uh, air easements must be compensated, whether it's navigable airspace or not. Um, and, and this has formed uh, the law for decades. Uh, today, the FAA requires, for instance, uh, airports uh, receiving federal funds must, must purchase navigation easements uh, from neighboring lands if, if they can't acquire as, mu as much land as they need. And courts have informally held that below 500 feet is, is kind of a per se trespass or a per se invasion of airspace that, that can be a takings. And, and that's, that's where law lies. Um, that obviously has implications for drones. Um, and, you know, just, just briefly, uh, I'll wrap up by, by noting that if, if you don't follow the drone industry closely, I think you might be surprised at how quickly this is all advanced. And, and there are many large and small companies wanting to do uh, drone services and, and are doing drone services around the world. Uh, Walmart, Amazon, Google, uh, UPS and, and others doing things like parcel delivery, medical deliveries, uh, and, and inspections. And, and you're starting to see in the last couple of years, states and cities get involved. Um, and, and this is an issue that that's festered for a while. Um, and, and GAO put out a, a very informative report in September about these issues of state versus federal authority over surface airspace. And I, I think we'll, we'll talk about some of those issues in, in detail in, in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, but yeah, I'll just conclude by saying, I, I, I think for, for this industry to thrive, federal lawmakers need to uh, what they're doing informally right now. Great. Thanks, Brent. Uh, excellent uh, starting overview. And let me turn to you, Diana, because I know that the drone industry has been concerned about some of the state and local uh, activity regarding the regulation of drones. So let me ask you to spend five minutes explaining uh, your approach to sort of ins and outs of jurisdictional competition in the drone business. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for the invitation to participate in this important discussion today. Uh, federal preemption over airspace regulation is a topic that I and many others in the industry feel very strongly about. I know that the concept of preemption will not sit well with many members of the Federalist Society, but I think it's important to address you know, the historical context in which it arose. Um, you've probably heard a lot of drone industry representatives raise concerns that regulatory patchworks would impede innovation and increase the cost of compliance, making it difficult to build a drone business, especially across city and state lines. These concerns are well-founded, but much more worrisome are the consequences of patchwork regulations for aviation safety. Um, you've probably heard you know, the phrase that the US has the safest and most complex airspace in the world. Um, this is true, but this wasn't always the case and it's not something we can take for granted. Um, we don't need to imagine what would happen if we had multiple aviation regulators in our airspace. We only need to look at our history and the origin story of the FAA. Before 1958, we used to have two aviation regulators. One had jurisdiction over civil operations and the other one over military flight. 
and even just having two regulators proved very disastrous. Um, tomorrow, as it turns out, actually marks the 63rd anniversary of a fatal crash taking place over Las Vegas, which brought to light the dangers of patchwork aviation regulations. Um, in this accident, uh, it involved a mid-air collision between commercial flight and a military jet, uh, which were operating under different flight rules under the purview of two separate aviation regulators supported by their own air traffic control. All 49 people on board the aircraft died, including a dozen passengers that happened to be key personnel working on the U.S. missile ballistics program. Um, the historical records from the accident actually indicate that their deaths set back our Cold War efforts. A month later, we experienced a very similar crash in Maryland, and the House of Representatives ended up establishing a committee to study these accidents. They ultimately recommended that a single agency must be created to manage our airspace safely. And there came the birth of the FAA. So the legacy of this Nevada crash, you know, led to this really important change in aviation safety, the unification of airspace under the FAA's exclusive authority. Less relevant to our talk here today, but, you know, for any history lovers out there, this crash also led to the critical mass rule that prevents key personnel, uh, you know, within a certain defense company or government agency from flying together on the same aircraft in case there's an accident. Um, so all this is to say that, you know, our own history has shown us the consequences of having two regulators. And so we should be very alarmed when we uh, think about the prospect of having 50 or more in this country. Um, and so, you know, we, we should keep this history top of mind when we see proposals that threaten to take away the FAA's exclusive jurisdiction over airspace, including uh, Senator, Senator Lee's Drone Integration and Zoning Act, as well as state and local bills that conflict with the FAA's authority, including bills we're currently seeing introduced in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, West Virginia, and other parts of the country. Um, these proposals have to be rejected principally because they threaten our strong safety record. Um, I'll note, uh, you know, Brent, you're a co-author on the Mercatus report, um, which we've recently looked at. You know, it actually seems to give states points based on how many laws they introduce uh, in place for drones, including airspace lease laws, navigation easements, and vesting rights, air rights in property owners. Um, you know, I respectfully disagree with that approach. I think the best way to drive innovation, prepare states for drone operations, and to ensure uh, safety in flight is to maintain the FAA's jurisdiction. And so if you ask me, I would prepare a very different scorecard. But thank you again for having me on here today. I'll turn things back over to Adam, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Well, thank you, Diana. That was a wonderful uh, opening uh, overview. And I want to follow up quickly with you and ask uh, you to help me drill down a little bit, because Brent started us off by talking about some important historical legal cases in this area. And uh, he mentioned the Cosby case. I know that's something you've given uh, some thought to. And then, also, of course, there's also the second restatement of torts, which affects the development of aerial trespass law. Um, and then second, uh, I want you to maybe discuss the Uniform Law Commission and the American Law Institute, which both each recently took up aerial trespass issues, and maybe give us an update on how that work by those committees is going and how it's relevant here. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I have obviously taken a close look at the Cosby case as well as all, you know, aviation lawyers do. Um, you know, the important fact about this case, you know, as Brent noted, it, it is a Fifth Amendment takings case under the U.S. Constitution. So, 
you know, oftentimes we hear property rights proponents, you know, incorrectly try to expand the scope of this ruling to suggest that property owners have the right to exclude, you know, pri other private actors from flying o over the immediate reaches of their property. You know, that, that would be an inaccurate interpretation of that case. Um, again, you know, even in Cosby, there was no right to actually exclude the overflight by the military. There was only a right to get damages for a government taking. And I think that's an important nuance to remember. Um, now that said, the, uh, you know, the, the concepts and the discussion in that court case have been imported into other areas of the law and other court cases. So we have seen some mission creep, I think, beyond what that particular court intended. Um, as you mentioned, the second re restatement of torts uh, does recognize aerial trespass. You know, it is committed if the aircraft enters into the immediate reaches of the airspace. It's unclear exactly what that is. Uh, but there's also interference with, um, you know, the use and enjoyment of the land as one of the factors. You know, moving forward to present day, we've seen, you know, a couple of committees of lawyers try to take up aerial trespass law and really um, revamp it and, uh, you know, in ways that I don't think trespass law should be revamped uh, for the context of drones. Uniform Law Commission, you know, first took this up, I believe, in 2015 and, um, you know, they did recognize that drones tend to not cause the type of injury that traditional aircraft do because of their small size, you know, the short duration of flight, you don't see wind, noise, dust, threat of injury, and, and those factors that you might see with larger aircraft. Uh, but instead of recognizing that, you know, they don't actually cause very much harm typically, um, they decided to redefine the torts so that no impact or interference would be required at all to make out a case. So the mere presence of a drone within 200 feet of property would cause a per se injury. Now, the effect of this, if it would have been adopted, would have been that property owners would have had the right to exclude drones, you know, within 200 feet. That was sort of the line in the sky that they've drawn that we've also seen in Senator Lee's bill and other, you know, proposals at the state and local level. I, you know, luckily, industry was able to successfully, you know, fight that effort, and ULC chose to to shelve it. But we've again taken up the, uh, you know, this discussion under the American Law Institute uh, over the last year, um, where they've also similarly attempted to rewrite aerial trespass law, and their draft would give property owners, you know, airspace rights as well. Um, and the ability to seek uh, injunctions to prevent people from flying over their airspace as well as damages. Um, but due to a lot of wide, uh, widespread industry concern, ALI has just recently decided um, that they will not take up the aerial trespass section of the tort uh, in the upcoming meeting in June. Okay. Thank you. Well, Brent, let me turn back to you. Um, and you can, of course, feel free to, to elaborate upon uh, anything that Diana had to say. But I also want to tee up another question for you, which is that many legal experts state that aviation and airspace is exclusively under federal authority. Uh, Texas, for example, was sued by drone operators for creating drone no-fly zones last year in a case uh, of NPPA versus McCraw. Um, maybe you could talk about the state of that case and then develop more broadly this question about uh, drone trespass. So the, the the McCraw case it was it was uh, it was an interesting one. Texas, like uh, probably about a dozen states, has started creating uh, drone laws, including uh, drone no fly zones. So excluding drones from 
so-called sensitive areas. And it depends on the state, but uh, these these typically typically include areas like uh, jails and schools and uh, uh, infrastructure, power lines, and, and so forth. And, and so Texas has this law, uh, and it creates um, civil and criminal penalties for uh, flying over these sensitive locations uh, and doing photography with intent to conduct surveillance is the phrasing they use. This, this law, uh, some drone operators sued on, on several, several grounds and uh, including that, that states cannot create drone no-fly zones, that airspace laws are uh, purely a federal matter, matter and that, that only the federal government can, can exclude uh, drones from areas. And, and I think, I think it was a bit of a surprise for, for many in the industry it, it, around Thanksgiving six months ago, uh, the, the, the federal district court uh, rejected uh, dismissed with prejudice the claims of conflict and, and field preemption uh, when, it, when it comes to states creating drone no-fly zones. Um, uh, you know, this, this is something I, I, I anticipated. I, if, if you look at the legal history again, uh, you, you do see uh, pretty powerful evidence that states and 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 private property owners have property and, and privacy interests in surface airspace, uh, but yeah, it, it is one case. Uh, it's it's one federal district court, but I, I think it's pretty persuasive. And the fact that uh, the preemption claims were dismissed with prejudice uh, is is uh, shows how how sure the, the court is of, of their legal standing on this. Um, and, and the plaintiffs, in fact, the drone operators. Um, uh, conceded that states have authority when it comes to things like trespass and, and privacy. And, and I think for the court that there was uh, an admission that states can regulate in this area. So, so it's, it's not quite as simple as airspace is purely a federal matter. It's uh, according to this case and, and a few others. And I think if you look at legal history, uh, there, there are state property interests here. Um, and I'll just add that the state, that the case is still ongoing. The preemption claims were dismissed. I, I think, I think the Texas might have some first amendment issues with, with some of it, but, uh, uh, but the preemption issues were, were dismissed. Well, thanks. And let me turn back to Diana. And as I do, I want to ask both of you to elaborate and uh, explain something about the, this, the current state and local efforts uh, that are out there or being proposed, because we're already getting some questions from the audience coming in. And one of them has to do with the question of, are we talking about state and local rules that are actually more restrictive than what we might expect out of a, a federal preemptive standard, or are they actually more flexible and allowing for more drone uh, innovation and integration into airspace? Because uh, it strikes me that if it's a patchwork, we could go in both directions. And Diana, what's your just rough feel on this sort of lay of the land about the, the nature of these restrictions? Thanks for the question. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the current legislative session, we already have 162 state and local bills introduced this year uh, that are focused on drones or urban air mobility. Um, you know, often we hear, you know, proponents of state and local airspace regulation that, you know, if we give cities and states the power to regulate, we'll have laboratories of innovation, competition. Um, you know, I wish that was the case, but unfortunately, when you actually look at the reality of what these laws look like, 
they're overwhelmingly restrictive. They're, you know, they're not trying to allow operators to do things beyond what the FAA permits, like beyond visual line of sight or package delivery or, or so forth. They're just tacking on additional restrictions. Um, a good example is the, the Texas bill that's um, currently being considered, which would make it a crime for unmanned aircraft to operate beyond visual line of sight. Um, outside of any avigation easements established by Texas DOT. Um, this bill would also allow Texas to regulate operations within the easements and then to impose fees on operators, um, as well as criminalize any operations above uh, 400 feet, even if those are authorized by the FAA. So look, I mean, is it possible to have, you know, good, positive, industry-welcoming, thoughtful regulation, absolutely. Um, we supported a, you know, a bill recently in Arizona that was just signed into law by the governor that would create a task force uh, for the state to look at you know, how to prepare for urban air mobility. So there are good opportunities out there, but they're few and far in between. Okay, Brent, you want to follow up on that real quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have... You have tendency states, uh, I mean, the, the typical law at the state level of airspace would be a, a drone no-fly zone. Um, and I, I think I think some of this is responding to local interests, um, you know, police, jail, facilities, schools, and so forth. Uh, part of this is FAA has acknowledged that states have a, have a role when it comes to things like privacy and, and trespass. And, and so... Um, you know, th this, this is how you protect uh, privacy and trespass. Uh, so I, I think that's one reason I am not, I'm not quite as, as negative about states and city. I, I think there are many, well, I know there are many, they, they reach out to me frequently about how, how do they bring, they want to know how do they bring drones, drone industry, drone services to their state or city. And, and I, I think it was a lot of analogs with, uh, the discussion and policies around autonomous vehicles, say five five years ago, you you had states uh, falling over themselves to have autonomous vehicle companies come come to their states and, and try out their services. And th you know these are one ton vehicles on, on public roads, and and I, I think you see a lot of that with drones. States and cities want uh, many of them want uh, these these services, and, and they want to be involved. Um, you know, as as far as so you, you do have these drone no fly zones. And, and and federal law recognizes that there will there will need to be uh, uh, no fly zones. On, on the navigation easements, I, I have a, a different view. Yeah, I, it might be a half uh, half full or, or half empty uh, kind of thing. But my fear, and and I think I think many who who are in this area fear, if states and the federal government don't collaborate on on creating navigation easements, these are essentially drone highways. Um, in, in the sky, if they don't collaborate and create these, um, away, away for low altitudes above households that the industry will be, will be tripped up and constantly fighting in litigation for trespass takings and, and nuisance lawsuits. And, and you've seen this in, in traditional aviation in the past and, and drones are, are distinct from traditional aviation where typically, uh, the airport or, or the, or the plane, you're only dealing with the immediately adjacent neighbors. So that's where uh, the takings lawsuits come from or nuisance lawsuits. With, with drones, they are quieter, they are smaller, uh, but they are flying in surface airspace, uh, you know, 100 to 400 feet above the ground. And so every household potentially has, 
has a property interest or, or a privacy interest. And, and so I, I think the litigation risk is, is much larger than, than for traditional aviation. So I, I see navigation easements. I've, I've written about it frequently as, as uh, a pretty elegant idea. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't invent this idea, but I've probably written about it more than more than anyone. But this idea of having navigation easements above public roads, just so you can avoid the nuisance, trespass, and, and takings lawsuits. And and some states are are, are looking at this. Um, I think uh, hoping to avoid the the nuisance, trespass, and, and takings lawsuits from landowners. Uh, Diane, I'm going to turn back to you to answer that. And as as I do, I want us to start maybe getting into a little bit more detail about the lead bill, the, the drone integration and zoning act at some point. So feel free to, to respond to what, uh, Brent had to say, but also let's, uh, start to introduce our listeners to a little bit more of the detail about how the lead bill would handle all of these questions. Sounds great. Thank you. Um, you know, in terms of easements over public roads, I'll say a couple of things, obviously, you know, battery life is very short for a lot of small drones, you know, 20 minutes or so. So, you know, being able to complete your mission by only flying over public roads is pretty restrictive. You know, what happens from a practical perspective, if I want to have my roof inspected so that I could process an insurance claim for, you know, hail damage or something like that, would I have to get permission from my neighbors, um, pay them a fee in order to do that? You know, I don't think that's right or, you know, makes sense. Um, I'll also say that, you know, limiting operations to, you know, only public roads or specific highways in the skies, you know, some people call them, it's very limiting for, uh, for, you know, us to be able to actually see all of the benefits of this type of technology and things like inspection, um, agriculture uses there, there's a lot that needs to happen outside of transiting over public highways. Um, you know, let's turn over to the, the Lee bill. It's the drone integration and zoning act, which, um, he again, reintroduced the session. I jokingly called it the drone patchwork act on Twitter. I think, I think it worked well because you guys invited me on this podcast. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, you know, his bill would uh, again, redefine navigable airspace for drones. Um, so that this would not include the area within, uh, the immediate reaches of airspace. Uh, which the bill defines as 200 feet above the ground over property. Um, it would also restrict the FAA from authorizing any drone operations up to this 200 uh, foot line without the property owner's permission. So essentially it would give the owners the right to create these no-fly zones, uh, really creating a patchwork um, over the United States, really severely hampering uh, where you could operate and how. Um, it would also allow state, local, and tribal governments to create restrictions uh, below 200 feet. So again, we would see a lot more patchwork. Um, and then it would allow uh, governments to create designated takeoff and landing zones, as well as designated commercial drone routes. So I'll say from a practical perspective, you know, drone operations do not require traditional zoning like for airports. Um, so this piece just doesn't really speak to the realities of the industry. Um, some popular drones are so small, you can take off from the palm of your hand. So, you know, is the city going to regulate uh, when and how and how much I have to pay a fee to take off, you know, from the palm of my hand with a small drone? I don't think that makes sense. Um, drone operations also don't need designated routes. Um, you know, they're not 
like uh, helicopters, right? It's very rare that one drone even encounters another drone. So, um, you know, I just don't think that um, the bill speaks to the realities of the industry. Um, overall, the provisions would severely impact innovation. I believe it would carve up airspace very arbitrarily and compromise both efficiency as well as safety. Okay, that was a good overview. I'm going to ask uh, Brent to elaborate in a second, but I do want to ask you one follow-up, Diana, because it's something we're already getting some uh, questions about from our audience, which is, what is it about this 200 feet level number? I mean, how, how did we get to that number? What's magical about it or bad about it? Um, and are there other industry concerns arising from proposals that would create a line in the sky at 200 feet as a matter of, uh, of, of law? Yeah, we've, we've seen this number of 200 feet, you know, come up in different discussions with uh, the Uniform Law Commission, with um, the Lee Bill, uh, the former Feinstein Bill. We, we've seen it come up a lot. I really don't know where it came from. Um, my best guess is, um, you know, typically under Part 107, which is the first uh, rule the FAA put out for commercial operations, you can fly up to 400 feet. So maybe someone said, let's cut that in half. Um, it, you know, it's certainly, um, you know, 200 feet is, um, you know, even well beyond the best interpretations of, you know, uh, Cosby case and, you know, trespass and, and things like that. Um, you know, in addition to, you know, these proposals being preempted, you know, they threatened to shut down really important drone operations that need to take place at lower altitude, including, you know, a lot of search and rescue missions, uh, first responder activity, as well as inspection. Um, it would also create a huge safety hazard, not just from the patchwork of the rules, uh, below 200 feet, because um, as you can imagine, uh, you can't just uh, magically start your mission at 200 feet and fly to 400. You have to somehow get to, to that, um, you know, 201 foot. But it would also push all of the drone operations to, you know, flying at a higher altitude than what may be required, causing more congestion closer to manned aircraft, therefore increasing the risk of the operation unnecessarily. So there is a big safety concern. Um, I'll say, you know, on, on the privacy side of things, you know, with the right uh, lenses and things like that and technologies, I mean, um, just, you know, we're not really addressing the privacy harms by pushing operations to 201 feet because perhaps the technology on board can easily um, still capture what's going on on the ground um, as it would if it were flying just you know one or two feet below that so you know I think it's important to address real harms like privacy trespass uh, but generally the the laws on the books do a pretty good job of that and I don't think the line in the sky uh, is the answer here. Okay. So Brent, let me turn back to you. There's two big picture questions here. One is, is the, is the Lee bill, uh, you know, ha, does it have legs? Is it a chance that this is the model and, and is it good or bad? Then there's the broader question of like, what about privacy issues? And there have been privacy related questions raised with regards to drones and even some legislative ideas floated. So maybe you could address both those things in your response. Yeah, regarding the the Lee bill, and there's there's several components to it. Uh, I, I don't I don't see imminent passage. I, I think I think Senator Lee um, is is the only sponsor right now. Um, but there there have been other bills in the Senate in the House that that are similar. And and you know my my view is 
if if Congress and states don't act in this area, courts will do it for them, uh, just like they did in traditional aviation. Um, so, in in your your view on 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 whether that's good or not, uh, probably depends on, on what the court says. But uh, courts courts will act, and in fact, they they are acting in these areas. The two hundred feet, I I wrote a paper. As, as I said a, a few months ago about the history of airspace regulation. And, and I actually, I, I favor something like the 200 foot mark. So for one, this would resemble what we have in traditional aviation, which is uh, essentially courts have said that traditional aircraft flying below 500 feet are, are a per se invasion of, of a property interest in, in, Trespass in aviation is a little different than than trespass on the ground. There's generally you have to invade a property interest, and it must be disruptive to those on the ground. So there's you kind of a mix of trespass and nuisance. Um, so I I don't think 500 feet makes sense for drones. Um, but but I, I think it is clear drones can trespass. Uh, they can invade a property interest, and they can disrupt those on the ground. And what what the Lee bill and these other bills and and some of the state bills would do would provide some some certainty and and we can quibble with what the right line uh, is um but we we have a similar line in traditional aviation it's 500 feet and you know right now if if you're if you're a drone company if you're a landowner you don't know where that line is it's not clear and you have to litigate uh to to find where that line is um and i i don't think that's that's good for uh, landowners or, or, or the, or the drone industry to, to be in this limbo. And I, I hope, uh, lawmakers and, and courts will, will provide some clarity soon. Um, and, and the 200 feet, I, yeah, I, I it, it kept, kept coming up. I asked, uh, I asked around where this number came from, from best I could tell, this may come from federal law requires if you're a building developer or a cell phone, uh, company, if, if you're building within three and a half miles of an airport, if you're building near an airport, you have to give notice to the FAA in the airport if, if your structure is taller than 200 feet. Um, but beyond, so if, if you're, you're very close to an airport, if you're taller than 200 feet, you have to give notice. And so I think the idea is if, if you don't even have to give notice of something below 200 feet near an airport, the, the, the federal aviation safety, uh, interest is, 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 uh, pretty small if, since you don't even have to give notice for building. Um, so I, I think that's where that 200 foot line comes from. And, and again, we can quibble with it. I, I think there's something to it. Um, but I think that's where it comes from. Okay, Let's good. Go over it for a minute. <laughs> yeah, go so, ahead. You know, just because you, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, if you don't have to give notice, there isn't much federal interest. I mean, I completely disagree. The federal interest in aviation is primarily over safety concerns, which by the way, the, um, you know, with the remote identification rule, which actually comes into effect tomorrow, will address a lot of the um, issues about, you know, who's flying where in airspace and also address the, um, you know, privacy concerns and so forth and help uh, with compliance on that front. But yeah, I fundamentally disagree. I think there is a huge interest in uh, federal interest. I think Congress has been clear to, you know, bestow full regulatory authority and the FAA has not been shy to fully regulate drones uh, as well as aircraft. 
Good. Uh, so I'm, uh, I keep getting deeper and deeper into technical questions here, but I, I want to also bring up some high level questions raised by uh, our audience. We've got a lot of really great questions rolling in. Thank you all for asking them. Um, one question that, uh, Michael Wigington asks, uh, that I wanted to ask, uh, which is about, there are many entrepreneurs innovating uh, with new technologies to break down barriers, uh, especially for things like medical use of drones, medical drones have substantial value proposition to innovative healthcare access, especially in rural areas, he says. And that's something I've looked at internationally. This is something that's catching on. And it raises the question of like, when we see like, uh, drone deliveries of medicines or blood to remote parts of, uh, remote islands, uh, uh, or, uh, remote areas of, uh, Africa, it, uh, what's going on there? Why is it that those countries are out there maybe a little bit ahead of the United States, if not significantly ahead? What, what was their policy framework, Diana and Brent? I mean, were they doing something that we should be emulating or, or not? Diana, why don't you go first? Sure. Absolutely. So I think what you're referencing is the, uh, initial drone blood delivery operations in Rwanda uh, conducted by Zipline. Um, you know, if, if you look at Rwanda's airspace, um, I believe Zipline's aircraft uh, accounts for more than 50% of the aircraft flying at any given time. So, you know, while it is true, you know, they got there first and started doing deliveries in that foreign market, their airspace is not nearly as complex and densely populated with all types of aircraft as the United States airspace. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, now, the FAA has moved along on package delivery. We, of course, did a lot of testing under the UAS, uh, the Unmanned Aircraft Systems uh, Integration Pilot Program that Congress set up a couple of years ago. Um, Wing, as you know, the Google company that focuses on package delivery, has been doing um, a lot of delivery operations in Blacksburg, Virginia. And so, you know, I believe Zipline and UPS, Walmart and others are coming along as well as Amazon. Um, I don't think we're that far behind. We just have a much more complicated airspace that needs to be um, taken into account. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with what uh, Diana said. Um, there, there are some, some nations that have allowed more, more complex uh, drone services than the US, although, although we are, we are uh, I would say, catching up. Um, you know, the Rwanda Ghana cases, uh, the, the U S has, uh, somewhere near 20,000 airports. I mean, it's just far more than, than any, I mean, these are, you know, often small municipal airports, but it's, it's far more than any other country. And so, as, as Dan said, it, we have a more complex system. We have a lot more, uh, aviation users, but because of that, you, you had countries that wanted drone services and, 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 you know, Zipline said they, they were not welcomed at the time in, in the U S they were welcomed and they had, they had regulators that wanted to partner with them in, in other countries. So they went, they're a U.S. company, but they went to other countries and, uh, and yeah. So in, in short, uh, you have more complex air system in the U S and, and for that reason, uh, regulators were not, not quite prepared to, to allow, uh, some of those operations. You know, conversely, when we think about jurisdictional regulation, um, another question we get from the audience and that I, I often have, which is, are, are there other types of sectors or models here in our own country that we should look at for important lessons? Um, a lot of the debate about uh, drones today is also a debate about, are we going to have flying cars in this country? And of course, when you think about cars, we've had the dreaded patchwork for many, many years in this country of state and local regulations of automobiles. We have state 
regulation of insurance markets as well, and uh, a lot of other things. So uh, let me just tee this up for you both to go in the opposite direction of the global question and go down to the local question. What should we learn from the experience in other high-tech sectors about jurisdictional competition? Uh, Brent, you want to take that first? Yeah, this is something I've, I've thought about. As I said, you know, some of my views are, are drawn from my uh, knowledge of telecom law. And in telecom, I, I think there are some some useful analogs, uh, which is uh, a shared federal and, and state issue. Um, so in, in in telecom, generally speaking, the FCC certifies devices and so forth. Uh, but the FCC is not picking where, say, a cell phone tower goes in in, in a in a city. Um, they're, they're not permitting, uh, you know, string of wires along main street, uh, in, in, in a downtown area that's, that's delegated and that's under the control of, of state and local authorities where those individual decisions are made. Uh, just because, uh, uh, the, the FCC just is, is not, uh, is not able to handle, make all those, uh, small local decisions. And I, I think there's some analogs with, with drone policy. I, I could imagine, uh, a similar system, and I think I think it's evolving uh, somewhat de facto. But the the FAA certifies drones and, and certifies drone traffic management systems. But um, as as the FAA said, trespass issues of trespass, uh, nuisance, uh, privacy the, these are local issues, and 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 they're not they're, they don't have authority over over those issues. So. Uh, I, I think you will you will see, and and we are seeing states and cities uh, be involved in in drone operations, uh, and I think that will continue. the The problem, as I see, is it's it's very ad hoc. Um, there is no formal legal framework, and as as the GAO said, this uncertainty about about how states and, and the federal government will collaborate is is an open question. And it's harming the industry. Um, so I, I hope I hope this will be formalized. Um, and, and similar telecom law or say traditional vehicle regulation, um, th there will be some, some devolution uh, for those very local uh, issues that, that states and cities are dealing with. But uh, before I get to you, Diana, um, uh, Brent, Josh Turner asked a question directly on point here, which is, uh, isn't the better telecom related uh, analogy here uh, spectrum? And we don't give state and local governments a, a lot of control of bands below like five gigahertz, for example. I, I don't, Spectrum doesn't raise trespass issue. I mean, uh, you know, the, the law here is clear. Uh, landowners own the immediate reaches above their land. A, a, an invasion of, of that property interest plus disruption uh, to you is under, under uh, current precedent is, uh, is a takings if, if authorized by the government and is trespassed if it's a private party. Um, so, I mean, aviation is filled with these cases. We, uh, so no, I, I, I don't think spectrum is, is, a, is a useful analog for this, um, uh, because you just don't have the trespass and takings nature, uh, legal issues that, that you have when it, when it comes to drones, which are physical objects in a volume of airspace above someone's land. Thanks, Brent. Uh, Diana, I didn't give you a chance to follow up on that broad-based question about uh, any lessons for good or bad uh, with regards to other sectors or technologies in terms of jurisdictional patchworks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I do think the proper place for, for drones is, you know, within aviation. And so, you know, 
I think the best analogy is to maintain what we've done to keep our airspace safe. And that's, you know, keep safety regulation fully under the purview of the FAA. Now, as we've discussed, you know, earlier in this session, obviously there are state and local government interests, you know, over land use, uh, zoning, privacy, trespass, and so forth. Um, you know, I will say from the perspective of urban air mobility, which is, you know, the focus of my current role at Hyundai, um, you know, our aircraft are much larger. They'll be carrying passengers in dense urban environments. And so, um, you know, for us, we will require local zoning for, for vertiports, which are what we call the heliports or the airports for our operations, you know, to be put on top of rooftops and parking lots and, you know, help people get in and around cities and rural environments efficiently. Um, and so, you know, one of the lessons that, you know, we've learned in our sector is, you know, from micro mobility. So a lot of those companies in that space, you know, really kind of entered local communities without, you know, building a dialogue and relationships and really, you know, working with the community to understand their concerns and to help mitigate them. And so, you know, we're taking a different approach while, you know, we fully support the FAA's authority over airspace. We are looking to work with a lot of cities like Los Angeles and others, um, you know, to make sure that one, everyone equally benefits uh, in this new technology, um, but also that, you know, we actually understand the local concerns, which might differ from uh, different jurisdictions. And so that's, you know, our big lesson is really, you know, working closely with communities on other aspects, despite the fact that, um, you know, the FAA should uh, remain the safety regulator here. Yeah, and Brent, uh, Diana mentioned zoning issues. And uh, one thing I forgot to ask you is about uh, um, a recent case in Michigan, I believe, uh, holding that drones operated by a city at low altitudes uh, found that zoning regulations are unconstitutional. This is a case of Long Lake Township versus Maxon. Uh, what happened in that case and what are its legal effects? And we've got about 10 minutes here and I have one more question. So if you can keep this one brief, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, so this, this Maxon case came out last month um, and yeah, a very, very interesting drone case. Um, there's there's uh, uh, a, a lot a lot here, but in short, this, uh, this town for years um, had, had been citing, uh, this, this, uh, this property owner for having an unpermitted junkyard for, for violating zoning, zoning regulations in, in the citation, uh, the, the city, uh, was, was using, uh, aerial surveillance photos from a drone operator. They, they had contracted out, um, to, to a drone operator and used some of the photographic evidence as, as, in in the citation that the landowners um, objected uh, and said that the the photo should be suppressed because it, it was warrantless search of their property and and the appellate the appellate court in Michigan uh, reversed the the trial court and said yes uh, th this was a, a warrantless search um, and and noted that landowners have a, a privacy expectation that drones will not be flying at low altitudes, um, above their land. And so, uh, you know, they cited, uh, trespass and, and Cosby and, and, and these other cases, um, and, and held that this, this photography photography should be suppressed. So it, it's, it's a privacy case, but it, it, it draws on 
uh, these trespass ex expectations. And the court even had language suggesting that even as high as 300 feet, um, landowners have some sort of expectation that, that they will not have drones in that airspace. So, um, you know, again, I, I, I think Congress and state lawmakers need, need to act in this area because courts, courts will draw lines for them. Um, if, if lawmakers don't, and I, I think this Michigan case is, is a good example. I think, you know, on the Michigan case, um, it, you know, it's true that the, the court of appeals agreed that the drone invaded, invaded the defendant's reasonable expectation of privacy, but, you know, they didn't actually explain any of the relevant facts that you would actually, you know, have to address to make out this type of a case. Um, you know, instead, it seems like just because a drone was used and drone is a new technology, you wouldn't reasonably expect it to be flying over your property. Um, so I think it's important to read, you know, the dissent in this case, which noted that, um, you know, just the presence of the drone itself doesn't violate Fourth Amendment rights. You have to look at the factors. Um, I believe the city is appealing this decision. So hopefully more to come on that front. Well, that's an interesting case. I wish we could talk that in more detail about it, but I, I only have a few minutes left with both of you. And I do want to ask you one last important question, which uh, some other people in the Q and A are asking, which is, you know, we're just a couple of months into a new administration here. And uh, the question is what's going to happen now under this administration? Do they have a new approach that's different than what the Trump administration did on this front? Uh, can we expect uh, big, bold action or is it steady as she goes on this front? Diana, I'll start with you on that. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you know, we've got some uh, rules that are coming out, including remote identification, operations over people, and night operations that actually go into effect tomorrow. Now, obviously, the FAA has been working on these, you know, and industry has participated over the last few years, so it's more of a continuation there. You know, in the future, we're going to be seeing rules to enable beyond visual line of sight, unmanned traffic management, package delivery. Um, and urban air mobility. I will say, you know, with the new administration's focus on, you know, equity and using transportation to right historical wrongs, um, as well as their focus on uh, clean technology and uh, clean transportation technology in specific, I think there are a lot of great opportunities for uh, urban air mobility, you know, in the new infrastructure bill um, to really help reshape society uh, in ways that are in line with the administration's objectives, which is really exciting to see. Yeah, I, I agree with Diana. Uh, the, the FA is, is uh, I think, eager to, to see more, more drone services out there. Uh, it's, you know, as, as far as, you know, the question of, you know, what will state and local role be? I, I hope this administration will, will bring some clarity for four years is, is a long time, uh, especially for a startup, uh, to, to have uncertainty about these things like the Texas case, um, like the Michigan case, uh, which, you know, talks about this expectation of privacy, uh, above people's households. So you know, the uncertainty for the industry is not good. I hope the federal, I hope the USDOT and FA will, will weigh in, um, in, in that GAO report, I keep mentioning, uh, they, they did say that, um, the Trump administration had started, uh, there, there's a USDOT USDOJ joint task force that was looking at this issue of drone federalism and what will the state and local role be relative to the federal role. And uh, at, in September, they said that report is coming out soon. Um, it hasn't come out yet. I hope uh, the change administration hasn't hasn't changed things um, because I, this this lack of clarity is is, is not good for a fast moving industry. Um, but uh, 
but no, I, I think this administration will, 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 uh, will want to see more drone services and, and have a permissive approach. But, um, this, this ad hoc system of working with states and localities is, is not good if, if you want a national industry. Well, thank you both. We spent an hour on this. I feel like we just scratched the surface and we could continue this conversation. Hopefully I can get both Brent and Diana to come back on maybe in another couple months or at least the next year and, and, and follow up on this. But in the meantime, I, I want to encourage everyone who uh, listened in and asked questions to continue to engage with Brent and Diana on social media. If you follow both of them on Twitter, in fact, you'll find uh, daily conversations about this stuff, uh, sometimes heated, but mostly friendly. Um, and uh, I think you'll be really engaged and educated by what they have to say in those discussions. Um, in the meantime, I also want to ask our audience to remember to subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcasting platform you enjoy using. And Brent and Diana, thank you so much for being the guests on today's show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great fun and I'm looking forward to uh, doing this again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Have a good one. Great. And thank all of you for, uh, for listening in. And until next time, we'll see you later. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G This has been a FedSoc audio production. 